300 years ago, when St. Paul's Cathedral in London was completed, King George I told the architect, a man by the name of Sir Christopher Wren, he told him that his work was amusing, awful, and artificial. Now, are there any architecture students here? Any? Yeah, there's a few of you, right? I wonder how you'd feel if someone said to you that the work that you had done was amusing, awful, and artificial. Except, believe it or not, it was actually a compliment. It really was. It's just that the meaning of words have changed quite a lot in 300 years. Because he back then, 300 years ago, amusing actually meant amazing. Awful meant awe-inspiring. And artificial meant artistic. So what King George meant by amusing, awful, and artificial in today's words was probably something like Dude, that's like totally amazing and awesome with some serious bling, man. (laughs) Words do change meaning over time, don't they? I remember in youth group years ago, I was talking to a kid about the food at the church camp. And he was like, yeah, man, the food's totally sick. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, well, it wasn't that great, but I wouldn't say it was that bad. I mean, sick's a pretty strong word. You know, in the olden days, roses used to stink because the word stink referred to any odour, good or bad. I mean, that's really changed, hasn't it? Except when people say it about me. I think I'll just take it the old way. Seriously, though, I want to say the word tolerance. The word tolerance is a word that's gone through some subtle changes in meaning as well. Tolerance used to mean you might be completely wrong about something and I'll tell you that but I will defend your right to disagree with me. You got it? Tolerance used to be about, really, freedom of speech, while still believing that there are such things as absolutes, that there are absolutes of right and wrong. You could be wrong. I'm going to tell you you're wrong, but I'm not going to coerce you or force you into my belief. Now, what does tolerance mean today? Well, in our postmodern context, where if there are any absolutes, there's just no way that we could possibly know them, In our context, tolerance has actually taken on an entirely new spin, hasn't it? Nowadays, tolerance means that I can't even tell you that I'm right and you're wrong. Tolerance means that I've got to become some sort of an epistemological relativist. I know these are big words. Art students probably know what I'm talking about. Engineers, you have no chance. Um, (laughs) What it means is that in order to be tolerant, I've got to not believe that there are such things as absolutes of right and wrong. I've got to believe that my beliefs are just right for me. That you can have opposite beliefs, but they're right for you. And so for me to pronounce any judgment about me being right and you being wrong would make me intolerant. That's kind of what it means. But do you see, the word has actually shifted meanings, hasn't it? So does God believe in tolerance? Right, that's the question I've been asked to come to speak to you today. Does God believe in tolerance? Well, let me cut to the chase and I'll give you the answer now. Here it is. The answer is, it depends. <laughs> wow, I'm glad we got to that, didn't we? Now I can leave. No, 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 that's where I'm going to get to. But don't worry, I'm going to show you how I'm going to get there. I'm going to show you why that's my answer. Now what I want to do isn't to wax theological or philosophical about tolerance. I want us to engage directly with the person of Jesus Christ, who according to his own claims, as well as according to the people who knew him best and wrote about him, Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. See, I want us to look at just one episode in the life of God, when God walked around on earth in the person of Jesus. 
Because I reckon that here, in this incident, maybe we can get some answers about what God thought and thinks about tolerance. So come with me. Now the incident I've chosen is in John's biography of Jesus' life. Gospel of John, chapter 2. Why I've chosen it will become pretty obvious in a moment. But let me just read it out for you. It's actually on the screen, so if you don't have Bibles, that's cool. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of the cords and drove out all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now I hope it's obvious why this episode in the life of Jesus is going to be relevant to us today. Because for most people in our society, in our tolerant society, this is about as far from the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, blonde hair, blue eyed, cuddling baby sheep stereotype that we get, isn't it? I mean, Jesus here was being quite the intolerant person. I mean, what right did he have to cause such a ruckus? Now this is especially so when you realise that, you know, those guys selling the animals, the merchants changing money, they were actually doing the people a great service. They actually allowed people to not have to carry their animals for sacrifice all the way from their hometowns. It's a long way and the temple was up a hill. Now, that means that people could just go there, buy the animals there. It's, it's a pretty good service. And it really helped that they could get their money changed there as well. Because what you don't know, you may not know, is that the only currency accepted at the temple in those days was a special temple currency. Right? The only way you could buy and sell was to change your money. So come on, Jesus. Why are you being so intolerant? These are just honest business people. They were doing people a service. I mean, it's not like they're dodgy Chinese shop owners, are they? <laughs> kind of tell you to be a man if you don't buy this. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're a Chinese shop owner. Yeah. Three pieces of background information are important for us though, to understand the significance of Jesus' actions. The first has to do with the purpose of the Jewish temple. The second, the place in the temple where these people were buying and selling. And thirdly, the person who was doing this action. Nice bit of alliteration. Purpose, place, person. So first bit of background. Purpose. You see, the God of the Bible, the true and living God, is a God who believes in absolute truth. In fact, He is that absolute truth. And he cares a lot about the way that his people related to him. And so in the Old Testament part of the Bible, God had very clearly circumscribed the manner and means by which his people were to relate to him. Now let me show you what God had said thousands of years before Jesus uh, came. And this is what God said to his people, the Jewish people. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. And it's here on the screen. God had said, You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. 
But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you'll live in safety. Notice this. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything I command you. See there? There was only one place. Only one place where legitimate worship could be carried out. And that place was eventually the temple in Jerusalem. God's people couldn't relate to him any sort of willy-nilly fashion, wherever, however they wanted. No, no, no. It had to be his way or no way at all. Now I can imagine that in our tolerant society, our postmodern mind, God's instructions there do seem kind of a, I don't know, totalitarian, I suppose. I mean, he's quite the ogre. Only, you know, when I think about my relationships, say with my wife, I can see that with any genuine relationship of care and love, you know what, people have got to come to each other on certain terms, don't they? I mean, I can't relate to my wife Karen however it is that I want. I have no right to use her, no right to abuse her, no right to be rude to her, no right to cheat on her. No, 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 for that relationship to work, I've got to come to her on certain terms. That's really just how relationships work. Now, that's marriage. But how much more so an unequal relationship? Right, such as the one between me and, say, my boss at work. Or me and the government of Australia. Or me and God, my creator. You see, for those relationships to work, I've got to be willing to come on their terms, don't I? Because quite frankly, my boss, the government, and God, well, they call the shots, not me. Now, when my boss is reasonable, I know not all boss, bosses are, and if my government happens to be benevolent and good, and if my God is a loving creator who loves me and cares about me more than I know how to care about myself, well, then coming on their terms in their relationships, well, it should be a pleasure, shouldn't it? Not a chore. Now, that's what the temple represented for God's special people. It represented a gracious meeting place between the Creator and His beloved creation. Now, it had to be on His terms. Of course it did. He was God. They were not. It had to be at His place, in His way, or no way at all. Because, you see, the temple incorporated not just the place, but also the means of relating to God and continuing that relationship. Because the sacrifices offered day in and day out at the Jewish temple reminded His people that their sins and their impurities needed to be dealt with and were dealt with because God graciously allowed it to be. Right? God took the initiative, provided the place, provided the means so that the temple and its sacrifices could continue that relationship between Him and His people. But you see, they could only come on His terms and they could only come because of His kindness and generosity. He provided the place, He provided the means. That was the temple and that was its purpose. So that's the first bit of background information. Remember I have three, purpose, place and person. The second one has to do with the place then. Right? The place where Jesus actually did all this kind of stuff, where he drove out the merchants. See, as I said, the whole kerfuffle didn't really have to do with the honesty or dishonesty of the merchants there. I mean, they might have been honest, they might have been dishonest. I don't think that's the point of the story. As I said, they were kind of doing the people a, a sort of service. No, no, the issue wasn't what they were doing, but in fact was where they were doing it. 
Look with me at this model of the temple in Jesus' day. Now you'll see that the temple is kind of one structure within another structure within another. One wall within a wall within a wall. Now the tall building right in the center was called the holy place. Only the priests were allowed into the holy place. And then only the high priest was allowed once a year to go into the central room of the holy place. You can't see it there. But in that central place was a place called the Holy of Holies. Now outside that central building, outside the holy place, was called the Court of Men. Right? Only Jewish men were allowed in there. Then out the doors and down the stairs was the Court of Women. Right? Jewish men and women could gather there. And then this big courtyard outside of the golden doors you see on the, uh, on the model. That was called the Court of the Gentiles. Right? The court for those who weren't Jews. Now this is where they could come and worship God. Now, those business people, the merchants that Jesus drove out, were selling and changing money right there. Right? In that outermost court. What was called the Court of the Gentiles. In other words, by their very presence, they were hogging up the space in the court of Gentiles and preventing non-Jews from their only means of worshipping the true and living God. Remember? You had to be a Jew to go in further. Then you had to be a male. And then you had to be a priest. And then you had to be a high priest to go right in. So the only place it was possible for Gentiles to come and worship God was out here. And now it was blocked because of these businesses. And now, third bit of background. Third P, person. Who was it that caused the commotion? Who was the man Jesus who had the right to do what he did? Well, as I said very early on, when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at God in human flesh. And so as Jesus marched into the temple that day, he came as God. The God who set up this temple so that people could come and relate to him. In the last book of the Old Testament Bibles, the prophet Malachi spoke of the day when suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. See, that's the background. So as Jesus came into the temple that day, he wasn't just any man who marched into that courtyard, was he? It was the Lord who came. And when God came and saw what was happening, He was rightly infuriated. He was rightly intolerant. I mean, how dare they turn his house into a house of trade, especially when the trade is stopping Gentiles, non-Jews, from their only possible way of relating to God. And so God the Lord comes, and when he comes, what does he do? He purifies the temple. And so I hope you see that Jesus' act of driving out these merchants, what seemed to be such an over-the-top act of intolerance, was in fact an act that showed what kind of a tolerant God God is. Because you see, God has always been concerned that outsiders, that non-Jews, 
those who aren't his people. He's always been concerned that they have access to him. Yes, they still got to come on his terms. But you see, built into the very fabric of the temple's architecture was this big reminder that all nations, all colours, all peoples could take part in relating to God. Right? That's the kind of tolerance that God does believe in. Right? Not, not the postmodern, wishy-washy, believe-what-you-want sort of tolerance, but a genuine tolerance, acceptance of people. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've walked away from God, no matter what your family history is, what your personal history is, whoever you are, whatever nationality or gender or colour or language, God wants you in. He loves you. He accepts you. He wants to be your God and your friend. See, God believes in that sort of tolerance. And indeed, more than tolerate us, He loves us and accepts us and welcomes us no matter who we are or what we've done. Because you know how this episode of Jesus at the temple finishes is actually the supreme reminder that God is truly committed to welcoming and accepting all people. Remember what happens in John chapter 2 after Jesus cleared the temple? The Jewish authorities interrogated him on his right to do this. And his response was pretty startling. He said, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now they thought he meant the physical temple they were, they were at, the Jerusalem temple. But we find out from the writer John that Jesus meant the metaphorical temple of his body. So see, sentence 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There it is, the ultimate demonstration of God's commitment to the outsider was actually the events of the first Easter. Right? There's subtly hinted there in that passage about after he had risen from the dead. Because in his death, Easter, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus was the one perfect sacrifice for all time. In that on, his, on the cross he completely absorbed God's anger against sin. The just and right anger of a holy and perfect God against our sin. Jesus took that as a substitute for sinful humanity. He was the perfect sacrifice. And in his resurrection, Jesus now becomes the new meeting place between God and people. Right? He is the new temple. That's why the temple was a metaphor for his body. Now what this means is that God was so committed in providing a place where all people could come freely and openly to him, without barriers, without distinction, he was so committed to that that he eventually provided a person. Remember in the Old Testament, in Jesus' day, the temple was one structure within another, within another. You had to be, I mean, God accepted all people, but in a sense you had to be a Jewish male high priest to get right in. Well, that's no longer, is it? Because of Jesus' death and resurrection and his body being the new meeting place, there is no distinction. Anyone, everyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, whatever, you can have free, equal and open access to God. Because when we relate to God through Jesus, and we do that by trusting in His death and following Him as Lord, then we can come to God fully and completely. And so now, God welcomes you, all people without distinction, to come to Him. 
Now it's still got to be on his terms. Remember that. Although his terms is no longer a physical building or a temple. It's, his terms is now through Jesus, the new and perfect temple. It's got to be through Jesus. But it is for everyone. And that's why even today, when people today get in the way of that, right, when God's people become insensitive to outsiders, kind of like the merchants were back then, when God's people make people feel ostracized and rejected because of who they are, because of what they've done, you know what? God hates that. Now I'll admit, Christians haven't always been good at that. As much as the history of the West have been examples of Christian acceptance and compassion and mercy, those things are true, I know that there have been examples where people have felt lesser because of the colour of their skin or even the colour of their personal histories. Maybe you felt that too if you've ever gone to a church and never quite fit in because of who you are, how different you are. Well, you know, God hates that. And today, the kind of tolerance that God believes in, it says to you and me, there's no such thing as a scarlet letter that excludes you from coming to Him. Yes, you've got to come on His terms. You've got to come through Jesus. Right? What you believe about Him has got to be right and true. All those things are true, but no matter who you are or what you've done, you can come to Him. So does God believe in tolerance? The answer, as I said, is it depends. It depends on what you mean by tolerance. If by tolerance you mean that there's no absolute truth and your truth and my truth can be opposites but we have no right to pronounce judgment on each other whether I'm right or you're wrong and I've got to tolerate your beliefs and actions no matter what they are, well, if that's what we mean by tolerance, then no, God doesn't believe in that. In fact, I mean, let's be honest, we don't really believe that either, do we? Take an extreme example. Pedophilia. I'll bet almost everyone here, if not everyone, believes that sexual abuse of children is absolutely wrong. And that if anyone thinks that pedophilia should be legalized, that we shouldn't tolerate it. Now, if you're a postmodern relativist, you hit a real quandary. Because there's no philosophical or ethical basis for you to say that pedophilia is absolutely wrong. None at all. None at all. You have no basis for saying that. And therefore, there's no real basis to not be tolerant of it. It's a pretty tough situation to be in. Now, if you're a Christian, though, you can be confident. And I do want to say that pedophilia is wrong. Because there are such things as absolutes. And God is the reference point for those absolutes. Now, coming back to what I was talking about before, there is an absolute way of relating to God. As I said, it's got to be on His terms. It's got to be through Jesus. Through Jesus' death and resurrection. No other way. And you can be wrong on that. And Christians shouldn't be afraid of standing up for that. And any view of tolerance that waters down that sort of thing isn't the kind of tolerance that God believes in. Now on the other hand, if what you mean by tolerance is the way that God accepts people and welcomes anyone to come to Him through Jesus, then yes, absolutely yes, God does believe in that sort of tolerance. And as I said, more than tolerate you, He actually welcomes you with open arms. Right? He loves the people on the outer. He loves those who are marginalized. He loves the irredeemable sinners that our society ostracizes and gives up on. He loves them when people like that find a home with Him. And so if you're a Christian here today, 
God urges you to be tolerant, but in the way that he's tolerant. Welcome the outsider. Do good to the untouchables. Love the unlovables. Bring them to God. No matter who they are or what they've done, bring them to God through Jesus. Now, don't buy the lie that there's no such thing as absolute truth or that you have no right to defend or speak for the truth. I still believe in truth. Speak for it. Do it humbly. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Be tolerant in that sort of way, the older meaning of tolerance. Disagree with someone respectfully. Talk about truth. Argue and defend truth. Don't coerce anyone. That kind of tolerance is a good thing. That's the foundation of our, I guess, democratic way of life, our freedom of speech. That's intrinsically Christian. But still, believe in truth. And believe in it enough to defend it and even die for it. But this also means that if you're here and you're not a Christian, well, you have two options. If something I've said about Jesus has kind of struck a chord with you, and seeing what real relationship with God looks like in the lives of your Christian friends, maybe the people who brought you here today, if any of that makes you want to know more, right? you don't have all the answers yet, you're not totally convinced, but you do want to know more, you want to pursue more, great! You know, don't let this opportunity pass without talking to me, maybe afterwards over a cup of tea. Talk to one of the student leaders here, Tim, or at least talk to the friend who brought you along. That's one option. On the other hand, if you are totally unconvinced, perhaps even strongly unconvinced, maybe even angry, annoyed at the things I've had to say, you know what I want to say? Good. That's fine. You can disagree with me. I want you to care enough about truth to disagree with me. And I'm happy to discuss and debate and nut out the truth with you, maybe over question time in a moment. That's okay. That's the kind of tolerance Christians believe in. I can believe you're wrong. You can believe I'm wrong. We can tell each other why. We can argue our cases. We can discuss it civilly. We can part as friends. That's That's a good option. That's a second option. What isn't an option? What isn't an option today is for you to go away and think, Oh, good for him. He believes that. I don't believe that. But you know, truth is relative. So it doesn't really matter who's right and wrong. Right? That is not an option. That kind of tolerance seems like a virtue. It's what our society lords. Yes, I know. But I hope you see that it is not an option. Because the person who believes everything is the person who believes nothing at all. Right? God doesn't applaud that kind of tolerance. He doesn't believe in that kind of tolerance. So please, Agree with me and find out more or disagree with me and come and tell me. But don't just walk away thinking that truth doesn't matter. That's it for me. I might um, actually lead us in a prayer. If you're not a Christian, you don't have to pray with me. But I just want to lead us in a prayer that maybe tells God the kind of concerns that we have. And then in a moment, you'll gather your thoughts and... uh, Feel free to ask any questions. It looks like we have about 20 minutes. Alright? Will you join me in prayer? Dear God, if you are out there, and for those of us who know you're there, we pray that you will show yourself to people here who don't yet know you. We know that you have revealed yourself, that you believe in truth, that truth has taken on flesh and walked the earth in the person of Jesus. And we pray that whatever outcome, whatever our attitude coming in, that we may walk out and be concerned for truth. Whether it means we agree and want to know more, 
or it means we walk out and disagree, but still firmly believe that truth does matter. We pray that they might be the options today. And we pray that those who are here who really are searching to know you and know the truth, that you might bring them to that so that they can come to know what kind of a great, merciful, kind and tolerant God you are. Thank you for providing Jesus. And we pray that we might remember that over Easter. Amen. Okay, the question is, uh, can I comment on whether or not it was intolerant of God to set up the temple in the way it was before, with a layer upon layer and kind of people, um, especially, I guess, non-Jews, but also women really being excluded? Um, what the um, bit of the Bible called the Old Testament is before Jesus came is really like, I guess, a, a model, a demonstration of the kind of things... Um, that would change once Jesus came. So it does seem, you know, on the one hand, intolerant that, you know, for thousands of years people had to kind of go in layer by layer and um, it was, the access wasn't as open, it wasn't as equal for everyone. But what it does highlight, and the purpose of that was to show that actually it, it, when Jesus came and erased all the distinctions, that, that that was kind of the goal, the fulfilment of that. So it was kind of like to highlight how great the new temple was by showing that even the old temple, even though, as I said, as part of that system, though it seemed to us like it was a real bother if you were a, a woman or a non-Jew, that you couldn't really go right in. Um, but even then, God did provide a means for them to come in. Uh, but what it really showed is on this side of, of Jesus, that what God provided in the new temple, in his new way, was going to be that much better. Right? So it's kind of like a, a, you know, a lesser to the greater sort of contrast. And, I mean, it does seem unfair for the people back then, but I do want to say that even though, you know, the, the, the Gentiles had to stay on the outside, the women only one layer in, that they could still have a real relationship with God. And in fact, the Old Testament is full of stories of non-Jews and women um, who were, in a sense, heroes. Right? So it showed that even though the temple kind of had that structure within a structure and it seemed kind of bad, that in fact, um, what it really highlights is that when Jesus comes, how great it is that anyone and everyone could come equally through him. And we don't really appreciate that nowadays because we, you know, we, we don't have that structure. But even then, God didn't welcome and tolerate all people. In fact, he didn't have to, especially non-Jews. Right? He really didn't have to provide a place for them. But it showed that he was always concerned for them. And pointing them to the fact that when Jesus came, all those distinctions would be erased and it wouldn't matter anymore. And you could be just as accepted even if you are a non-Jew. So I, it kind of answers your question. Yep, the, the question was, do the distinctions in the temple reflect um, something about the fact that God was holy and therefore the layer upon layer? Um, definitely in terms of the big distinction between the, you know, the, the central building, the most holy place where the priests could go and in there, the holy of holies, where the high priests could go, that was meant to show that um, God is a very, very perfect God and when people related to him, in a sense they had to, they had to really come through all these kind of obstacles. Right? Now, God provided the means by which they could come, but it really was 
you know, it was meant to be a lot of trouble because people couldn't come as they were. They had to go through sacrifice, representation, mediators, priesthood, and all that kind of stuff. So that's definitely true. So that, thank you for that comment. But whether the distinction between, say, Jewish men and Jewish women um, was part of showing God's holiness, I think you'd probably be a bit stretched to argue that, right? Because in a sense, we know from creation that God created uh, male and female to be intrinsically equal, right? They have different roles, but equal in terms of work. And so really, it shouldn't matter whether or not you're a female or a male in terms of how you could relate to God, uh, at least in terms of sinfulness and holiness. Um, so that probably isn't as much a distinction. Probably the distinction between Jews and, and non-Jews, I guess that would have to uh, have a holiness element to it too, so that's probably a helpful thing to point out. That again, they were even more on the outer, because um, according to God's kind of way for his people, they weren't circumcised, they didn't, weren't part of you know, the, the laws and all that kind of stuff he gave, and so they had to only come on the outside. But I, yeah, as I said, I think the amazing thing is that he still made provision in that structure for that. Um, and again, just keep in mind that all that kind of stuff is supposed to point forward to the day when all of the structures will come tumbling down and be erased because of Jesus. But thank you for that. Good pick up. The question is, uh, I mentioned how we're to defend the truth and especially um, the good news about Jesus, what Christians believe in, um, but we're to do it lovingly and humbly. But how do we do that? Practically, what does that mean? Does it mean we um, you know, force it down people's throat? No, of course it doesn't. Um, you know what? If you're a Christian, your actions do more often than not speak louder than your words. Um, it means not compromising on your life and what drives you and what beliefs you have. I mean, why you don't get drunk at a party, why you don't uh, go to that Bucks party with your mate, you know, all those kind of things. Your life does speak very loudly. Um, and I think from a passive point of view, continuing to live with conviction, continuing to let your Christian life just be normal part of you without being preachy or superficial or kind of pretentious, just, you know, just, just be you um, genuinely and not be ashamed of that. that. That is, in a sense, your way of standing up for the truth. And I tell you, if you can live that and live that consistently, people will notice. They'll ask you. You won't even have to shove it down their throats. Um, but it does mean that if conversations do come up and you know they do ask you and you know you get into a debate about truth, um, yeah, I think it means that respectfully, do feel like you can disagree with someone. You know, you can actually say, look, you know, I respect you. You know, you're my friend, and you know what you say. I can see your point of view, but I, I got to say, it's wrong. You know. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'm happy to talk with you why it's wrong. You know, let, let's sit down and, and argue, with, like you know, argue it respectfully through. Rather than I think a lot of the situations we get ourselves in um, is, yeah, I, I can't even tell you I'm wrong, or I can tell you you're wrong. And you, that that that's the biggest sin to actually tell someone they're wrong, uh, because there's no such thing as absolute. And for me to even claim that I believe in absolutes is is a kind of big act of intolerance. So I think Christians ought not to kind of fall into that trap of thinking that. You know, we can't say, yes, there is an absolute truth. Uh, but again, if that's not mirrored in your life, if your life isn't full of humility and respect and gentleness, then people are going to think you're a, you know, a prat. Um, not like you, but um, do you know what I mean? But I, I know Christian people who really are. I mean, they're just the loveliest people. But, and when it comes to a situation where they talk to their non-Christian friends 
or family about this and they stand up for the truth, yeah, it's going to grate a little. But in the end, they're not Christians' friends. No, look, look, I might be thinking this isn't very comfortable for me, but I know this guy and he is not an arrogant, stuck-up you know, sort of guy. And I can see the genuineness of his life and the transparency of his life. So, you know, he, he can disagree with me and, and I'm happy to keep talking with him. Um, yeah, and, and they won't take it as you're trying to force feed them. Um, okay, so the question is the limits of tolerance. Um, say the example of pedophilia, which I mean is quite an extreme example. But um, when I say do not tolerate them, which sense do I mean? Um, I think do not tolerate them means that, for one thing, we should legislate against it. But there is such a thing as freedom of speech. And so. I don't believe in, you know, anyone who, who voices opinion, especially, I guess, when it's not... I mean, look, someone might really, really believe that pedophilia should be allowed in society, right? I mean, it's a dangerous view, and I'd be very scared if that was the case, but especially if it's done in, the, uh, in a, you know, in a, in a reasonable and, you know, they, they really are not just... It's not just coming off the bat of, I suppose, uh, hype or craziness or lunacy, you know? And, you know, and, and there are a lot of philosophical views that get get kind of promoted in that sort of way. In a sense, we, we should give people a right to say what they say. But, um, tolerance, and the limits of tolerance is, um, especially if, if I'm a Christian person and I believe in absolutes, then I, I want to legislate against it. Not their, in a sense, not their right to say, but definitely their, their right to ca- for people to carry out so that sort of thing. And in a sense, I have a philosophical basis to legislate against it. What I guess I was saying is, in the postmodern view of, of absolutes, or the, you know, that, that we can't know any absolutes, it means that I can legislate against it. I mean, our, our, our government does, and thankfully does, legislate against it. But the reason why I legislate against it isn't because I believe in absolutes, but because it's pragmatically the best way. You know, we can't have pedophiles walking around in our Western society. It's okay for other societies, and in fact, you know, we can't make a blanket legislation about all cultures and all societies. That's the postmodern view. But, you know, for our society, for it to work, we've got to legislate against pedophilia. I just don't think that's good enough. And I think that goes against our gut instinct as well, in seeing that any time a child is sexually used and abused um, is a wrong thing. Um, so I guess uh, it might have the kind of same outcome in that we legislate against it, but as a Christian person, I want to say, yeah, there are limits of tolerance. I will legislate against it. Um, and in certain times, I might prevent someone from speaking out against it. I might have legislation about that, because I think some people can do it just to create a stir, or for the sake of you know, whatever, um, or to really influence people in a negative way. But if it's kind of, someone has a different opinion and they want to voice about it, and especially if it's done in a, I suppose, a reasonable sort of manner, defending and arguing against the truth, I guess, yeah, I mean, I do want to say that there is such a thing as freedom of speech. Yeah.